All right, I'm going to pray for us. We'll jump into the Word. Father, thank you so much for your presence. Thank you, God, that your Holy Spirit speaks to us, and we just are so grateful for the moving of your Spirit and how our hearts are touched, and God, we're strengthened. We're reminded that you're faithful. We're reminded that the name of Jesus is powerful, that darkness cannot overcome him. And tonight, we pray that you would demonstrate that power through the Holy Scriptures, that, that we would be strengthened as we consider our Savior and the perfection of his sacrifice. We pray that we would be lifted up and God encouraged by your Spirit that no matter what we might be dealing with today or this week, we would remember that you are in control. God, you are faithful, and you always come through. And so we trust you tonight in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we start this chapter tonight, I just want to give you a little reminder of where we're at in this uh, story. Uh, as we jump into chapter 12, we're really on Tuesday of the Passion Week. So, uh, you know, we've considered the triumphal entry of Christ. If you're looking at the Passion Week, of course, uh, traditionally, we begin the Passion Week considering the triumphal entry, which would have been that uh, amazing Sunday, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, as uh, there were multitudes that were gathered, and they were honoring the king that had come in a way that was unconventional, in humility, riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey, uh, palm branches being laid down before them, or excuse me, before him, uh, Parts of clothing taken off and spread before the king just as an as expression of respect and honor. Um, and then remember, we talked about how Jesus went up onto the Temple Mount, that he surveyed the situation uh, in the sense of inspecting. He was the king coming to his nation, and so he was inspecting the place of worship. He looked very carefully at what was happening there on the Temple Mount. He left Jerusalem. He went to Bethany, which was where he resided every night during the Passion Week. And as he was coming back to the temple on Monday, before he got to the Temple Mount, uh, you remember with me that he cursed the fig tree. Uh, we talked about the symbolism of that. He ascended up to the Temple Mount, and he cleansed the temple for the second time. He had made his inspection. He had uh, seen once again after three years First time he cleansed the temple, it was a, a warning that the people of Israel needed to really get themselves in order, especially the Jewish leaders, and now three years later, nothing had changed. And so he turned over the tables, he drove out the money changers, and then as he went back to Bethany, of course, you remember the story, the fig tree was withered up from its roots. He resided in Bethany on that Monday night and came back on Tuesday, and Tuesday is and uh, was a day of teaching on the Temple Mount. It was a day of healing on the Temple Mount. Uh, this particular day would be a day that he would be challenged by the religious leaders in their effort to discredit him in front of the people. Now, remember, there was a feast that was being celebrated during this week. Do you guys remember what the feast was? It was the feast of, starts with a P, ends with an R, compound word, Passover, 
All right, it was the, I know you were thinking it, but you were totally afraid to say it. So, so next time, just shout it out, and if you're wrong, I'll just correct you in front of everybody, and that's not, it's really not a big deal. But it was the Feast of Passover. Remember, there were thousands of people that had been gathered there in Jerusalem, and there were three festivals that were required for Jewish men over a certain age to attend. They would come from not only uh, all over Israel, but they would come from all over the world. And so, you know, historians say that there were tens of thousands of people that were cramming into the uh, city streets of Jerusalem and that would have been worshiping up on the Temple Mount, and they were celebrating something that had great historical significance to them. Uh, the Feast of Passover looked all the way back to Exodus chapter 12, and I'm not going to go like deep into this, but you remember the story. Uh, the nation of Israel, well, it wasn't really a nation yet, the people of Israel, they were uh, under Egyptian bondage, they were in slavery, and they had prayed and asked God to give them uh, redemption. And so God sent a redeemer. His name was Moses. There were nine plagues that were poured out on Egypt in an effort to get Pharaoh to release the stranglehold that he had on the people of Israel. Uh, and then that final plague, you remember, it was the death of the firstborn. And the instruction that God gave to Moses was, tell the children of Israel to take a lamb uh, on the 10th of Nisan. This was a, a particular month in the religious calendar of the Jewish people. Take a lamb on the 10th day of Nisan. Uh, select that lamb, one lamb for a family. And then that lamb is going to live with you for four days. And on the 14th of Nisan, that lamb is going to be sacrificed. Its blood's going to be poured out into a bowl. And then you're going to dip the hyssop into the blood that's in the basin, and you're going to sprinkle the doorpost and the lentil of the home. The sacrifice has been made. Obedience has uh, been demonstrated. And when the angel of destruction comes into Egypt, uh, the angel will recognize the blood of the sacrifice and pass over that home in mercy. Instead of judgment, instead of the loss of the firstborn son, the angel is going to recognize the sacrifice and pass over that home in mercy. And so all of this imagery, right, I think at this point in time, uh, there had been uh, something like, don't quote me on this, but uh, over a thousand uh, Passovers that had been celebrated. But this was the imagery that was in the mind of every Jew. They were thinking Passover. They were thinking the selection of the lamb. Uh, they were thinking, you know, and they had that lamb that had uh, been inspected sometime during the week, living in the home, and they were looking forward to the day where it would be sacrificed uh, for their sin. <clears throat> Obviously, the symbolism of that is so clear because while that was being celebrated in Israel, the father had selected his own lamb. Remember John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, when Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit that came like a dove there at the water baptism, one of the things that John said was, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Well, as they were celebrating this uh, beautiful feast of Passover, the father on the 10th of Nisan, which would have been the Sunday, the day of triumphal entry, was acknowledging to the people that he had selected a lamb. Jesus was his lamb, and he was being identified to the people not only as the king of Israel, but also as the Messiah. 
as the people were singing out Psalm 118. And then not only that, but some four days later, on the 14th of Nisan, Jesus would be sacrificed, he would be crucified, his blood would be poured out, you know, not on the doorpost and the lentil, but in the shape of, you know, the figure of the cross, and not just for one person, but for the sin of the whole world, and certainly not for his sin, because he was a perfect, spotless lamb, without sin, without blemish. And during the Passion Week, his life was inspected, his perfection was inspected. Remember, if you had a lamb that was going to be offered as a sacrifice, you would first have to take it to the priest, and the priest would go through the lamb with a fine-tooth comb, very, very carefully making sure it was sufficient for the sacrifice. Well, in a similar way, during this week, the religious leaders would test the Lord as well. And most commentators believe that Tuesday was the day of testing. It was on this day that they challenged his authority. And as we're going to see in just a moment, Jesus responds to them by sharing a, a parable. Now, the parable is going to reveal in very unflattering terms the spiritual condition of the religious leaders and their spiritual blindness. And so in a way, the parable that's given, and remember, we just, as we wrapped up chapter 11, their question was, by what authority do you do these things? Like, who do you think you are? Where's, where, you're not a card-carrying Pharisee or Sadducee. You're not part of the Sanhedrin. You didn't go to our rabbinical school of theology. You weren't raised up in Jerusalem. You're not from the tribe of Levi, so... Who are you to cleanse the temple? By what authority do you do these things? And so Jesus escalates the argument here by sharing a parable. Let's read the parable together. The Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 12, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So far, so good. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully, and he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son, Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, does this sound familiar? And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. Have you not read this scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I said to you last week that uh, the nation of Israel is symbolized uh, in three different ways with respect to trees uh, or, you know, bushes. That's, a, that's the wrong word to use. But it symbolizes a fig tree, it symbolizes an olive tree, and it's also symbolized as a vineyard. Um, in this parable, Jesus kind of 
shares 2,000 years of history in 12 verses with these people that are listening. Um, and it's not a flattering history. And by the way, it was something that they would have been familiar with. Like the symbolism of Israel being a vineyard was, was familiar, especially to the religious leaders. Their minds would have gone back to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 17. Now, I'm not going to read uh, that to you tonight, but in... Isaiah's prophecy, he likens Israel to a vineyard, and, and the context of that particular prophecy is dealing with the issues that were prevalent in Israel at the time. As Jesus is using this same imagery, they would have connected what he was saying to the prophecy of Isaiah, which, by the way, was not a flattering prophecy uh, as well for those who were re religious leaders. And yet, in this particular parable, what Jesus does is he uh, reveals to them, and it's not an allegory, it's a, it's a parable. So remember, a parable um, is an is a earthly illustration that illustrates one heavenly point, as opposed to an allegory, which an allegory has all sorts of different details that you can draw from it, but a parable really has one particular point that it's trying to make. Uh, and the particular point here is a rejection of the religious leaders uh, of the Messiah. And so as they're listening to this, what they're hearing is, well, we are the, we're the tenants. Uh, we're the ones who, as God has been sending his prophets over the course of time, have hardened our hearts, have been resistant, um, have not yielded to the word of God. Remember, this was so often the case with the nation of Israel as God would seek to draw back his wayward people. He would send prophets who would speak forth the word of God. And historically, as you look at the nation of Israel, they resisted, they rejected, and even sometimes they killed the prophets. If you were a prophet, I know sometimes we have this like idea that prophets were celebrities and and, you know, wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been great to be a prophet in the Old Testament? Uh, and no, not really. Like, if you really wanted to have a, a difficult life, uh, it would have been to be bear the word of God to the nation of Israel. I mean, there are some exceptions to that, but you think about Jeremiah or you think about Ezekiel. You think about what Isaiah himself endured. And to be a person that was carrying the word of God to a wayward people was not an easy thing to do. They were often resisted and sometimes even murdered. And so as he's relaying 2,000 years of the history of Israel, he gets to this culminating point, um, and it's just so evident, it's so obvious when, when he's talking about the owner of the vineyard, who of course is the father, the vineyard of course is the nation of Israel, uh, the wine press and the wall in the vineyard, do you know what that is? I don't either. I have no clue what that is. And honestly, it doesn't matter. That's not the way parables work. It's not an allegory. We don't have to try to like squeeze more out of it than Jesus intended. But obviously, you know, those servants who have gone to, to reach the tenants and to um, gather fruit from the vineyard, which is what the owner expected, those are the prophets. And then when you get to the culmination of the story, uh, the beloved son of the owner of the vineyard, of course, is Jesus. And the tenants, instead of respecting and honoring the son, they abuse him and they murder him because they think that in doing so, somehow they're going to receive the inheritance. This was so unflattering. And as we read verses, or at least verse 12, we're going to recognize 
uh, because it says it, that the religious leaders that were present, that were listening, understood that the parable was against them. Jesus wraps up this parable with an interpretation um, using Psalm 118. Now, Psalm 118 should be familiar to you because uh, we've read some of Psalm 118 when Jesus came in in that triumphal entry. The people that were gathered there uh, were declaring, uh, this is the day the Lord has made Blessed be the name of the Lord. They were uh, shouting Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All of that is in Psalm 118. But what precedes all of that exclamation are these verses in Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so you have this like fascinating juxtaposition of Psalm 118. On Sunday, it was the declaration that the king, that the Messiah had come, Hosanna, salvation, because that's what he brought. And then just in those preceding verses, you have this uh, almost enigmatic section of scripture that did not make sense to the average Jew at the time because they did not know that in the first coming, their Messiah would suffer for the sin of the people. This stone that had been rejected, this stone that, that was considered seemingly insignificant and with, without value, had in fact become the chief cornerstone. Now, when you were building uh, a structure back in the day in Jerusalem or uh, in the Roman Empire, as you were laying the foundation, you would cut a stone, it was called the chief cornerstone, you would cut a stone with perfect dimensions. It would be perfect on all sides. You would set that stone uh, in the exact place that you wanted because the rest of the foundation would be measured off of that stone. So the foundation would be laid out based off of that stone. The elevation of the foundation would be based off of that stone. And then the building, the rest of the structure would be based off of where you placed that stone and its dimensions. So in other words, the most important stone in the building that was being built was the chief cornerstone. And that's what Jesus is saying, right? In the beautiful house, the spiritual house that God is building, he is the chief cornerstone. Paul would later say, there's no other foundation that can be laid than the one that is laid, and that is Jesus Christ, and the good news of the gospel. And as he wraps up this interpretation by using Psalm 118, he says this, it's marvelous in our eyes. Like it's marvelous in our eyes. This was, in other words, this was not what was expected. This was not what we thought the plan was going to be. In fact, it's so unconventional, no mind could have ever come up with this. That Messiah would in fact suffer for the sin of humanity and in that, establish an eternal kingdom in the hearts and the souls of men and women. You know, I think it's interesting as you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ at this point uh, of time in particular, you could have looked with some discouragement. You know, you could have looked and, and thought, man, he's at such a disadvantage. He's at such a disadvantage. He's not accepted by the religious leaders. Uh, he's been rejected by the religious leaders. Here he's on the Temple Mount, and he's going to just get attacked from every single side. You know, it's almost as if he's living with disadvantage and always in, uh, in, in defense of himself. 
almost even in a sense from earthly eyes that this thing that he's doing really isn't as successful as probably many hoped it would be. Certainly that was John the baptizer's point of view. Remember, as he was in prison, he was expecting Jesus to do something different. He had messianic hopes and expectations that he thought that Christ would fulfill. And doubt filled his heart to the extent where he sent some of his disciples to Jesus. And he said to them, say to him, are you the one we've been waiting for or is there another? Because this isn't working out the way that we thought it was going to work out. And then you know his response. His response was, man, the, the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers, the, the, not the leopards, but the lepers are healed, the dead are raised, right? So there is the fulfillment of everything that really Messiah was prophesied to do. Oh, and hey, John, also, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You know, I think there's such a, just a good thing to remember here as maybe some of the people were wondering just exactly what it was that Jesus was doing. Don't ever underestimate Christ's plan. Don't ever underestimate his plan. Right? I think that there were some who were probably like, man, I, I didn't sign up for this. This was not what I was expecting. Like I thought, there would be, I thought there would be just a consensus, that there would be acceptance, that there would be support, but he's always on the defense. And these individuals who have the, the greatest popularity and the greatest network and the greatest influence, they don't even like him. I mean, is this a guy I should be following? But you know what? He had a plan. And his plan was perfect. And let me just apply this to your life too. He has a plan, right? He has a plan, and his plan is perfect. Like you may not see how he's going to work it out. It may look like you're at the disadvantage. It may feel like you're always on defense. It may seem to you that, you, you know, there's not a lot of victory and there's not a lot of resources, and, you know, you had all of these hopes of what he was going to do, and it seems like it's gonna, the bottom's just going to fall out. And I would just say, hey, trust in him. Have faith in God. He always comes through. When you are walking in the Spirit and trusting God and living a life of obedience, the bottom never falls out. He never drives you off a cliff. He is never going to let you down. Oh, Yeah. Can I get an amen? I was reading in the Psalms uh, this morning, and, and it was just so good. You know, the psalmist David was talking about how, you know, our trust, and this is, this is in terms that are 3,000 years old, all right? So just deal with the context. He's like, man, our victory is not in the army. The victory of the king, it's not in the army. It's not in the war horse. Uh, it's not in your weapons. It's not in the strength of the king. The victory is in the Lord. And the Lord looks on the heart that is trusting and hoping in his steadfast love. What is your responsibility? Is your responsibility to, to lean into the, the, the things this world has to offer or somehow think that God's going to fulfill his plan once you have all of the networking and the resourcing and the, and the strength that you can accrue from the worldly assets around you? No, the truth is you don't need any of that. What you need to do is you need to trust in him. His plan will never fail you. Amen. 
Well, verse 12, check this out. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Now, just so you know, Pharisees and Herodians hated each other. I mean, they hated each other. These uh, were two different groups uh, within Judaism, two different religious groups. They had their own uh, set of beliefs. They had their own approach to God. Of course, Pharisees were ones that considered themselves to be set apart. They not only were masters in the law, but they were masters in oral tradition. Uh, and so, you know, they, the, these two people were always at each other's throats, but Remember the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So, you know, in their mutual hatred of Jesus, they had found some common ground. The Bible says to trap him in his talk, verse 14. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion like they're laying it on so thick. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Do you think that they really believe that? Is it? So here you go. Here's, here's the trap. Is it? So they butter him up. You know, they are manipulating him using, or they're seeking to manipulate him uh, by using flattery. By the way, that oftentimes works on people when you tell them what they really want to hear. You know, you just... You just grease the wheel a little bit so that you can ultimately get what you want out of somebody. Uh, please remember, manipulation is not a tactic that the believer in Jesus Christ ever resorts to, ever resorts to. We don't ever resort to using flattery to get our way. You know, speaking about people in terms that we really just don't believe anyhow with an ulterior motive to kind of shape them in a way where they, where they do what we want them to do, those tactics are not biblical tactics. They're not tactics that the spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ ever uses. And then in addition to that, you don't ever get sucked into that either, right? You don't ever just get like drawn into the words of flattery and, you know, when somebody is, is, is pumping you up so that they can manipulate you to get you to do what they want you to do. You don't yield to that because your sense of identity is not found in what people say about you. It's found in what the Bible says about you. Your sense of who you are, you're standing before God. You are not pining for the next person to say to you, you know what, man, you are the greatest thing since sliced bread, and you're so much better than that person, and you're so gifted, and, and you know, it's like, you're, you've been pining for it so much, it's like feeding something inside of you that God doesn't want to have fed. It's called pride. And pretty soon, you know, as you, you're eating it up and you're believing your own press, which the person saying it to you doesn't even believe anyway, pretty soon you find yourself in a place where you're doing things and saying things that you know you shouldn't do or you shouldn't say, that you're just a, a tool in someone's hand being manipulated to accomplish their personal ends. And you don't need to live in that place because your sense of identity comes through the cross of Christ. But this was the trap. 
Uh, here it goes. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, you know, thinking that, that they got him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And the Bible says they marveled at him. So they come with these flatteries. They come with these lies. This is the Pharisees and the Herodians. You're going to notice that the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, uh, all representing pretty much predominantly the religious leadership at the time, they all come with their test, their trap for Jesus. And of course, they're envious and jealous of the influence that he has over the people, and they're going to try to entice him to say something that causes him either to lose favor with the people or to put him in opposition to the occupying Romans. And that's precisely what this trap was. When they buttered him up to get him to this uh, statement, is it lawful to pay taxes to, Caesar's or, to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? All of this was a trap that they were laying because from their perspective, it was a lose-lose situation. If he would have said yes, then he would have been pitted against the Jewish people because they would have thought, man, you're supporting the occupiers? And then, of course, if he would have said no, he could have been accused by Rome of um, committing sedition because at the time, Rome was heavily taxing the Jewish people. Remember, Judah, the southern part of Israel, was a Roman province, and the governor of Rome was excising taxes on the people. If you, were, if you had a farm and you were into agriculture, uh, for all of your vegetables that you produced, you would pay one-tenth of a tax on all you harvested. For all of the fruit that you produced, you would pay one-fifth percent of a tax, so 20% of all of the fruit you harvested, plus on top of that, you had a 5% income tax, and you were required to pay one denarius just for the right to exist. So like you thought the IRS was bad, right? I mean, this was, this was, this was pretty rough. This was why the Jewish people uh, wanted to be liberated from the occupiers uh, so bad because they were just being oppressed. I mean, you do the math there, you're talking 20% plus 10% plus 5%, you know, that's 35%, and then a denarius just for the right to exist. And so this was why there were so many uh, Jewish zealots looking for political Overthrow, And so you can see just how volatile this situation was. What does Jesus do? Well, he says, why put me to the test? In other words, look, I know what you guys are after here. Um, and I see right through your flattery. Bring a denarius to me and let me look at it. And then he responds like he so often does with a question, right? This was a, a rabbinical uh, tactic to either get people to really think through what the rabbi wanted them to learn or to unveil the hypocrisy of somebody who might be in contradiction. He says, well, whose image is on the denarius? And so if you were holding a denarius at the time, on the one side, you would have had the image of Tiberius Caesar, Augustus. It would have said, son of divine Augustus. 
And then on the other side, it would have said Pontifex Maximus or chief priest. So on the one, one side, you had the picture of Caesar. It was Caesar's image, a son of divine Augustus. In other words, remember, there was the cult of Caesar that had just been developed. They proclaimed him to be divinity and worthy to be worshipped. This was especially repulsive to Jewish people. Every time they had to have a hand on a denarius, it was in conflict with their monotheistic worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They hated it. And so on the one side, you've got the picture of Caesar Tiberius, son of Augustus, and then on the other side, chief priest, Pontifex Maximus. And Jesus brilliantly says, Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Hey, whose coin is this? Well, you know whose coin this is because his image is on it. It belongs to him. I mean, you have the opportunity. It's been loaned to you. You have the opportunity to use it, and you get some benefit. But since it belongs to him, pay it back to him for the benefit. Now, remember, Mark was writing to Roman readers, and so they would have learned in this that Christianity did not foster disloyalty to the state. But he goes on to say, um, render unto God the things that are God's, the, thing that, the things that belong to God. And so in that statement, he denies the divinity of Caesar by saying, hey, and by the way, this belongs to Caesar, give it back to Caesar, and you know whose image you bear, you bear the image of God, and so render to God the things that belong to him. You belong to God, and so he's denying uh, the divinity uh, or the supposed proclaimed divinity of Caesar. In one simple argument, he supports his Jewish belief and at the same time, puts himself in a position where he's not able to be convicted of sedition. But I know that in the mind of the Jewish person that was listening at the time, their mind would have gone back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where the Bible says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The primary responsibility, in other words, from the lips of Christ that you have is to worship God is to worship God. Who do you belong to tonight? You belong to God. Whose image do you bear tonight? Look, I think in some sense in our, in our uh, enlightened, saturated culture, we think, man, I don't belong to anybody. I belong to me. I'm the master of my own destiny. I'm the captain of my own ship. I call my own shots. I have my own will. I don't need anybody, I don't worship anybody, I'm not submitted to anybody, and the truth is this, no, you do worship because you've been made for worship, and right now you're worshiping yourself. Right now you're worshiping yourself, your whole life is oriented around you, but you've been made in the image of God, you bear his image, and because you bear his image, the desire of God, the command of God, the purpose of God for you in your life is to render, to pay back, to give to him what is rightfully his in the first place. And that is your whole being. Later on, we're going to see in this chapter, we won't get to it tonight, a lawyer comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest of all the commands? And Jesus references the Shema in Deuteronomy, to love the Lord your God. You guys know how this goes? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Hey, in a, in a Western culture that so, uh, we're so used to compartmentalizing our lives, you know, we've got a percentage for our profession, we've got a percentage for our family, we've got a percentage for our hobbies, we've got a percentage for God, and I just would say to you tonight that God doesn't just deserve a percentage, he doesn't want just a compartment of your life, he wants your whole life, he wants your whole life. And so can I ask you tonight, does he have your whole life? Does your whole life belong to God? Because the reality is this, there are many Christians who go to church consistently, right? They, they've been born again, and yet there's only a part of their life that they've really yielded and submitted to the Lord. And tonight he calls us to render unto him what belongs to him in the first place, and that is our whole lives. Verse 18, Jesus is tested again. The Bible says, and Sadducees came to him, or excuse me, and Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. So this is, we'll talk about the Sadducees in a second. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There, and so they give this little story. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? The better question is, what's wrong with that woman? You know, I mean... <laughs> We got some serious issues. And maybe what's wrong with those dudes, because I'd be like, pass, pass, this is not, this is not looking good. Verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, look, you read the story, and, and you know they're just playing a game, right? They're playing a game. They, they've concocted this. They've concocted this hypothetical situation because really the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection anyway. They were materialists. Uh, it's interesting to consider the Sadducees were uh, the religious sect that made up most prominently the Sanhedrin. So remember the Sanhedrin, they were the ruling, governing uh, authority at the time during Christ's reign uh, or during Christ's first coming. Tell them I'm not here. It's all right. You're good. Um, and so the, the Sanhedrin was comprised mostly of the Sadducees. They were materialists. In other words, they didn't believe uh, in the spiritual, metaphysical aspect of uh, the universe or of a human being. Uh, they were also the aristocrats, and so they were exceptionally wealthy. Uh, the high priest and his family would have been part of the Sadducees and then all of the lay leaders most likely as well. They believed that the first five books of our Bible were inspired. They only believed that the law of Moses, uh, the Torah, was inspired, and they rejected all of the oral traditions. They were the wealthy elite businessmen who were actually the ones uh, doing the trade on the Temple Mount. So they, they were uh, making all the commerce. When Jesus flipped the tables over and drove out the money changers, uh, those, 
all of those people were working for the Sadducees. And so, you know, they come with this hypothetical situation trying to deny the reality of the resurrection. All of it, of course, based off of the Levirate law. And the law went something like this. It came from the Old Testament. If a man is married to a woman and they have no children, but the man dies, it is the responsibility of the next brother in that man's family to marry that woman. And the, the purpose of this law was to maintain the name of that individual and also the inheritance. They did not want the inheritance to die away uh, in the nation of Israel, the inheritance of land, etc. And so there was this law that if this particular man had no children with his wife, no son, and he died, well, the next brother up. And so this story is like, well, the next brother up, and then the next brother up. And they were just ridiculing the idea of the resurrection, kind of like when someone says, well, do you believe God can do anything? And you say, yes. And they say, well, can God make a stone that's too heavy for him to pick up? And, and of course, you say, no, because God's not stupid to do something stupid like that. What a stupid question. No, you don't say that. But... But it is just ridiculous, right? It's just absolutely ridiculous. And that, that was the, the, the line of thinking that they had. I mean, in their brilliance, they thought they were going to overcome Jesus by this stupid hypothetical idea. But he responds in verse 24. The Bible says, Jesus said to them, is, uh, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I, I love how sweet that puts it, right? You know, you are quite wrong. So he starts off in the answer and just says, hey, listen, number one, you don't know the scriptures, and number two, you don't know the power of God. In other words, you have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Um, I, it's so interesting to me, oftentimes when I'm talking to a skeptic and they're bringing up things that they think just really undermine my position as a Christian, sometimes they'll say something like, well, you know what, what about all the contradictions in the Bible? Do you ever get this question before? Well, what about all the contradictions in the Bible? It's like, well, well which ones are you talking about? Well, you know, you know, all those, all those Bible verses where like it says one thing here and then it says the total opposite somewhere else. I'm like, yeah, well, give me an example. Well, you know, I don't have one off the top of my head. And, and, then, and then it's like you, you just like, you, 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 you drill down a little further. Well, have you ever read the Bible? Well, no. No, I haven't read the Bible. And it's like, well, how about this? How about you start with reading the Bible? And then you can come back to me with these supposed contradictions, and then we can talk them through. So many people, all I'm saying is, so many people have opinions about a book they've never even read. They've never even thought through themselves. You know, it's a legitimate question when someone comes with some crazy thought to say to them, hey, where did you get that? Like, who told you that? There are times where I'm talking to people that are unbelievers. You know, we're having this conversation. Inevitably, it happens on the airplane. You know, Kenny and I uh, went down to Mexico together. And, um, you know, the 
airplane ride for me oftentimes is office work, right? So, so I'm like locked in and pop, 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 pop. But there's a woman, you know, it was a full flight. Uh, we, he sat on the end, I sat on the window. We left the seat open in the middle of Southwest because, you know, you're just hoping. I mean, who wants to sit between me and Kenny? I just, I just got to say that, right? You're just hoping no one fills the seat. Well, this lady's walking down and, and you know, everything's filling up and so... So Kenny's like, hey, do you want to sit here? She's like, really, can I? And Kenny moves over and she sits on the end. And I mean, it was 60 minutes of straight talk. It was like 60 minutes. Uh, and she was, she, she opened the door. You know, it was one of those conversations where it's like, you know, she starts talking and you start witnessing and then she starts talking more. And it's like, look, you're going to play this game. You're getting all of it. You're getting, all, you're getting all of it. Like, and she was, she was just open. But man, she had all of these different ideas. It was an amazing conversation. She totally got ministered to. Thank God for that. But she had all of these ideas that she had synthesized together. You know, Christianity and Catholicism and Mormonism. And it's like, you know, who taught, who, who told you all this stuff? Let, let, let's untangle this mess that you've made and let's, let's get to the truth. Let's get to the truth. You know, there are a lot of Christians today that don't know the truth because they're not reading the Bible. You know, and, and you know, it's not that they're not surfing websites that talk about Christianity, but because they're just doing that and not reading the Bible, their whole framework of Scripture comes from sources that are not even reliable. And so I'm just saying to you today, when, when you make conclusions about God or you're making conclusions about the Christian faith, make sure you're going to the source. You've got to go to the Word of God. And as maybe a skeptic, maybe you're not a believer, before you disregard God and before you disregard Christianity, I would encourage you to read the Bible. And as you're reading the Bible... And maybe you're not a person of prayer, but I would encourage you to pray this prayer, God, reveal yourself to me, right? Reveal yourself to me. Because even the atheist can't absolutely without a doubt say that there is no God. Because you don't even believe that there is truth. And so how could you posit something so definite and true as saying that there is no God? It would contradict your own philosophy. And so as you're reading the Bible, I just want to encourage you to ask God to reveal himself to you. The response that Jesus gives is just so amazing, right? He says, you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. I'm going to flip it around and handle the last one first. You don't know the power of God. We're talking about the resurrection. You don't understand it because when people rise from the dead, by the way, Jesus clearly believed in a physical bodily resurrection because he says it right there, right? When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So you don't understand the power of the resurrection. You don't understand the new order that's going to be created. He didn't say this, but we know this is true from the, hind, from, from the benefit of hindsight, from looking at history. He was saying to them, you don't understand the new order for all of creation that I'm going to establish with my own resurrection. Human beings will be eternal beings that will live in the presence of God. You can't even compare this life with what life is going to be like. There is going to be no marriage. There will be no procreation because the nature of eternity isn't suited for it. 
We will be known. I know some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, I won't know my spouse. And some of you are like, Okay, that's wrong. Shame on you. Shame on you. Hey, we will be known just as we are known. I believe, without a doubt, that we will know one another and we will know the history and because we're going to be giving God praise for every good thing that he has done. And we will know who our spouse was and we will know our children um, but it will be such an extraordinary transformation that you can't even necessarily connect those dots. And all he's saying is you don't even understand it. You have no idea what you're talking about. The new order I'm going to create through my resurrection is going to institute something that I has not seen nor has ear ever even heard what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. And then he goes on to say, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, you guys know what we're talking about? The burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. (laughs) It's just so good, right? Look, what, what, what you have to love is this. Remember I said they didn't believe in oral tradition, the Sadducees, but they did believe in the first five books of our Bible, the Pentateuch, or the books of Moses. Now, where is Exodus? Exodus is book number what? Is book number two. Is it in the Pentateuch? Was it written by Moses? And so the brilliance of what he does is he goes to the only books that they believe were inspired by God, and he proves from Scripture that they say is, in fact, God-inspired. He proves the resurrection, and he does it so brilliantly because it was there at the burning bush that this is what God says. He, do, he, he doesn't say, hey, you know those dead guys? Those, those dead guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those dudes that died and don't exist anymore, well, I was their God. He doesn't say that. He says, I am their God. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Again, again, full belief in physical, bodily resurrection and the eternal union of the spirit, the soul, and the body. As... All of this is rolling out. Remember, I started tonight by saying the significance of Tuesday in the Passion Week is Christ being challenged and inspected by the religious leaders, by the religious hierarchy. They were finding, trying to find some fault in him, but he was faultless. He was blameless. Like the lamb that would be brought before the high priest and the other religious leaders and inspected, uh, the, the priest would say, behold, if it was a lamb that was without spot or blemish, they would say, behold, the lamb, I find no fault. And they would hand the lamb back to the person, the, the father of the family, and the father would take that lamb back to his home and then sacrifice it on the 10th of Nisan. And all of this was transpiring about Jesus, who is the lamb of God that would be slain for the sin of the world. And you know the religious leaders came to a place where they found no fault in him. And then Pilate, representing the Romans, would say, I find no fault in this man 
because he was absolutely perfect. Why is this important? Because if Christ wasn't perfect, his sacrifice would have never been perfect for us. He had to have had an absolutely sinless, perfect life to make a sacrifice that was sufficient for the sin of humanity. He had to have lived a life that was holy and blameless without sin himself. And as he was inspected by all of the religious leaders and even by Pilate himself, the overall sentiment was that he was without spot, he was without blemish, he was faultless, and therefore he was able to make an all-sufficient, perfect sacrifice once and for all. Sometimes when we talk about Jesus, you know, rightfully we talk about his crucifixion and his burial, his resurrection, and sometimes his ascension, if we're in the book of Acts, we don't often talk about the perfection of his life. And I think that the perfection of his life is something worthwhile for us to consider because he's beautiful. He's beautiful. There's no one like him. I mean, you, you read the gospel accounts and you just consider the beauty and the perfection of the life of Christ and all of that should provoke within you a desire to worship him because there's no one else like him. And then finally tonight, thank you for being patient. I think in addition to that, it just settles our hearts before God. You know, you're not on a performance, you're not on a performance wheel. It's not about your efforts. It's not about your strength. It's not about what you bring to the table. It's not about your, your religious rituals that you're engaged in and how faithful you are with them or how much you've struggled with them. It's not about you pulling yourself up by your moral bootstraps and fixing the addictions in your life. No, you have rested and settled your life on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ and you have right standing before God, not because you've been a good Christian, but because the Lamb of God was slain for you. And when he died on the cross, he said these words, it is finished. This is why he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your soul. Tonight, tonight maybe you need that rest. Tonight, maybe there's been some turmoil Tonight, maybe there's been some turbulence. Maybe there's been some struggle. Maybe there's been some failure. Maybe tonight, you know, as I was talking about using tools of manipulation, you're like, oh man, that got me. Well, guess what? He died for that sin. Maybe tonight you're like, oh man, I hope my wife's not gonna be there. And you're convicted, okay? Well, he died for that sin too. Whatever it is in your life, Whatever area you fall short in, it's his perfection that gives you right standing before the Father. So put your trust and faith in him. Find your rest in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word tonight and thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you, God, that you are good and that the sacrifice of your son was sufficient, that we're not on a performance wheel that you look at us and you're pleased because you're pleased with your son. Thank you tonight that, that we have a, a savior who's worthy of our worship. Thank you tonight that, that we can find rest for our souls. Maybe tonight you've, 
Just as we're in this moment of, of prayer and closing our time together, maybe you've never put your trust and faith in Christ. You know, you've, you've been a skeptic and you've had all sorts of arguments, but you know, the truth is you're just repeating what you've heard. You've never sought for yourself. You've never asked God to reveal himself to you. And here you are in a place you never thought you'd find yourself. You're in a church. And I just want to tell you tonight that there is a God and he loves you. And you're made in his image. And that need that you have deep inside your soul will never be satisfied until until you worship him, until you receive the son, his son by faith, until you find your right standing before God, not because of who you are or what you can do, but because of what Jesus did. And so tonight, if this is you, you know you need to begin your relationship with God. Tonight, I wanna pray for you. I'm just gonna ask you, you know you can, you can be born again tonight by God's spirit. You can be accepted by God through faith in his son, the beloved. And so tonight, if this is you, would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you tonight. You need to take a step of faith and trust in Christ. Just stretch your hand up high. 